Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the fascinating realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Cy Munnam, a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm excited to have you join me on my conversation with Dr. Ara Chelian. Dr. Chelian is a distinguished professor of otorhinolaryngology at the University of Pennsylvania with a specialized focus on facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. His illustrious career, spanning over 30 years, has been dedicated to the meticulous surgical management of head and neck cancers and the compassionate restoration of form and function for his patients. Today, we shall unravel the intricacies of cancer pathogenesis, delve into the transformative realm of robotic surgery. His rich experiences shed light on the evolution of surgical practices and the profound impact of patient-centric initiatives on healthcare quality and safety. Without further delay, allow me to introduce Dr. Arya Chilian. Sai, thank you for asking me to join you. I'm excited to have our conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Chelian. You're actually the first ENT surgeon we're having on, so it's I'm super excited for this and uh, get the audience to learn more about what ENT surgery and facial plastics entails. Super. Well, uh, I think your initiative is exciting, and and I'm sure it'll help a lot of people. And sometimes, as we're doing our conversations with you as the student. Uh, we learn so much about what you're looking for that I think it helps us become better teachers and hopefully mentors and role models. So just in terms of like background and of ca- cancer pathogenesis and what what got you interested in this field, could you just share the journey of how your interest in ENT and more specifically facial plastic and reconstructive surgery started? Absolutely. I started medical school pretty clearly aware that I liked people and wanted to help contribute to the solutions that would provide better health care. And, and I knew I enjoyed working with my hands and solving puzzles and um, looking to new solutions for problems. So it, it made sense to me to explore surgical fields. Interestingly, I liked and loved many of them, including the patients and the conditions. But I really found my home in otolaryngology I think partly because there, I had an anatomy professor who had been treated for and survived parotid cancer, and I saw his uh, joy in learning the anatomy of, and teaching the anatomy of the face and the head and neck to us as students. And then secondly, I saw something in otolaryngology, ENT, head and neck surgery, and facial plastics that really was exciting for me. And I didn't know why it was exciting until I got further into it is I realized that I enjoyed the continuity of getting to know the patient, the person and their problem and trying to be a key part of the solution uh, in their journey to wellness. And also that I would get to keep taking care of them, which a lot of fields, it's more sporadic, but I found that exciting. And I also realized that if at a point where I couldn't operate or I wanted to dedicate my time to other things as well as taking care of people, uh, that I could juggle that uh, and actually be almost completely non-surgical, which is not the way my life is right now as an otolaryngologist, but it really gave me some some uh, clarity on my choice. And the other thing I saw in Odo uh, was that there were still plenty of frontiers and and that those frontiers would help people go through treatment and recovery that would allow them to regain what they had lost. And you kind of alluded to this, but uh, I think having good mentors uh, really plays a role in 
how you shape your career and aspirations, right? And and when you have good mentors within this field, it almost motivates you to pursue and emulate those mentors. So how did that look like for you in terms of the journey from that initial interest in the anatomy lab to being where you are today? Sai, you're making me smile as I remember these moments. There were several residents when I was a student who showed me how much they liked the field. I said, oh my gosh, I want to be just like them. I wanted to learn the science and the exam and have their style of taking care of patients and people and communicating. So they were good mentors and role models. And I had two or three faculty who I still quote their and share their thoughts uh, today, whether I'm in the clinic or in the operating room. Uh, one of them I get to see in a few uh, weeks, uh, who is our uh, vice chairman. His name is Ed Weisberger He at Indiana. He was one of the key role models for me. And his senior faculty, Dr. Lingaman, was another one of my key role models who I really patterned a lot of who I am after them. And then there was another resident who was not in our field. Um, there were two, actually. One was a pediatric surgeon and one was a medical oncology fellow who I remember... Uh, to this day, the way they spoke to their colleagues and to us as students and how they helped me realize that each one of us contributed. And they actually uh, helped me kind of create my style of sh communicating. And I think you're right. You have to find mentors. They're around you everywhere. And mo hopefully most of us are good ones. And sometimes you'll learn from us things that you don't want to copy or emulate. <laughs> Well, I just from what my friends have told me about you, you're a great mentor to them. So, well, thank you. I I enjoy working with our Penn students. Um, you, as a team across the board, are really uh, well educated, so mature, so open minded, and open eyed in terms of soaking it in. And then I love the fact so many of the, our class take advantage of the Penn PhD opportunities to contribute and build the science as well as go into the business school and share who we are and what we do with the business classmates you get as well as learn about um, important things that create better structure and better healthcare. So I'm excited. I'm excited that you're interested in that, Cy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think Penn really enables that too with the one university policy. Like right now I'm, I'm taking a course in medical device development at Wharton just because my med school allows that for me. And it, it's very it's a very privileging position to be in, to just have like a very multidisciplinary approach to seeing things. It is. It, it sometimes helps you validate an idea that seems almost impossible. But right. the impossible is what we want to go for. Right. Yeah. And you were also talking about really loving the patient population in ENT. And you see a lot of uh, head and neck cancers. Um, I do. As, as a result of, you know, specializing in the ear, nose, and throat. Could you describe the type of cancers that you see, the pathogenesis of, you know, someone contracting a cancer, like developing a cancer, some cells, you know, just going haywire, not behaving properly, uh, that leads to these cancers. And especially when it's on the head and neck, right? It's a very uh, vulnerable position for the cancer to develop because you're taking away a part of them almost, right? Yes. And so just uh, if you could just talk more about that. I think you said it really nicely that when a person gets a cancer that grows on either their skin or one of their surface areas in their mouth or their nose or their sinuses or 
their thyroid or some of the even lesser common ones, it's an attack or a challenge to our our identity and, and our function and our organs and our quality of life. So when we're in this battlefield or whether you call it the Roman Forum where we're going to joust with all of these diseases, we're really going in it with um, a team and and our patient is a human being who really wants to get better. And so we form, we focus on fighting those cells that have gone haywire, whether the cancer treatment is surgery or, or a combination of surgery and chemotherapy and radiation, or it's no surgery, but we're involved with the diagnosis and the evaluation and the um, assessment as to whether the tumor has responded. But I have to tell you the thing that, as you pointed out, Sai, it's so important to talk about what the challenges may be in terms of form, function, identity, sense of self, because psychological, emotional well-being and and providing this, the treatment, the support, the environment for that to flourish and to be optimized is important because otherwise none of us can go through any of those treatments easily. In terms of the pathogenesis, some of the things have really changed. Uh, we see some cancers now that we really attribute to a virus, a virus exposure in the past, like human papillomavirus, which we know now that if we, uh, whether we're a male or female, and whether we're younger as a child or kind of in that early adulthood can get the HPV vaccine, that minimizes our chance of getting head and neck cancers that are originating in the tonsil of the palatine tonsils or the lingual tonsils, which right now is a high percentage of the cancers we treat. And the second thing we've seen is with the change in smoking habits, which first in the United States, it was very common and in the world, very common to smoke. It was almost given to us, the exposure to tobacco. Now we realize that the danger of that and we fight that danger with all sorts of tools. But once you've been exposed, we still get the chance to potentially develop cancers. So we treat cancers that are related to tobacco and alcohol. Of course, we treat cancers related to sun and chewing tobacco and other chemicals that are um, more uncommon exposures. But the most common thing I think we see right now that's relatively new that hits younger adults as well as uh, senior adults is HPV-related squamous cell carcinomas, which are highly treatable, and I think we're going to talk about that a little later. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of just the patient coming in to see you for um, after this cancer diagnosis and the counseling that's involved with you know the procedure and operation and post-operative care, after getting this cancer removed, how does that look in, in terms of preserving function of the different structures within the ear, nose, and throat, but also appearance cosmetically? How does that conversation look with the patients? The, uh, the first part of it is there's several tiers of maybe shock, fear, anger, worry that the patient and their family have, and they're all realistic and they're real because depending on where the tumor is, some form or function may have already been taken or compromised by the presence. Like if the tumor is on the edge of the tongue and it's sore, speech and swallowing may be affected, or if it's on the voice box, the voice or swallowing may be affected. So we talk through where the person is now, and then we talk through and share the best ways to treat 
to minimize some of those side effects. The minimization has really been an evolution. Uh, as you alluded in the introduction, I've been doing this a little while. All of a sudden, it's been 30 or so years since I uh, ventured into the classroom at the point where you are, and I was already amazed at progress. So one of the things I would share with you as listeners and on the journey of learning, which is I'm still on that journey, is that the innovations will continue to come. And so most of our ideas are, are probably really good ones. So work on those ideas. Um, but in our case, in the time that I've been in, in involved with treating the cancers, the surgeries have evolved into more and more structure preserving and cancer removing, and then reconstruction with tissues that are similar or matching the tissue we remove. So example, if we remove the edge of the tongue and we feel like you should have new tissue put there, we'll try and re replace that with like textured tissues that are soft and pliable and, and have a good uh, epithelial surface. It won't necessarily be tongue, but that's the best we have right now. Like we may steal some fat and skin from somewhere in the body and reattach it to the blood vessels. And if we remove bone, such as the jaw, we'll replace that with new bone that's that we can immediately bring alive by using microvascular techniques, which we'll talk about a little later. But what I've appreciated is our incisions have become smaller and more tactically placed, and we try and preserve the contours and the shapes and forms uh, to get the person through the recovery, generally speaking. And a lot of that has really moved, come a long way in the last uh, 30 years. I just find it very sci science fiction almost where you can literally take different tissues within the body and then use it for different functions and like the skin and blood vessels almost learn how to like live in that new environment. It's, it's actually really crazy to think about. It is. And I like the way you use the word science fiction. Some of the things that we used to like watch on Star Trek or Star Wars or the Jetsons are now coming closer to reality. And um, so I think the cues are maybe out there in the imagination of some of the people that write, but I'm going to probably keep coming back to this side. A lot of it is in the imagination of what you see when you're in training or you're going through life and you say, I wish it could be that way. Then I think we should talk about that because we can probably work on developing the way we want it to be in terms of solutions. And there's almost like a very creative process to, uh, I guess, fit the specific functions and like the goals of the patient while having almost this grand landscape of human tissue to use. It is. Patient. So the, um, the one thing you said that was really right on target is we have to talk about the goals of the patient and, and then look at our kind of, to be very uh, colloquial, our toolbox, so to speak, the grand landscape. And the body has an incredible reserve of tissues that we can borrow and transplant and transpose. It's not quite like transplant surgery where we're taking somebody else's tissue and cells that have to be reacclimated immunologically. But we do have tissues that can be repurposed. But the frontiers are probably the chimeras and the stem cells and the fabrication and the structural building tools that were just on the, the beginning of understanding and how and transforming into usable uh, tools to help take care of patients but we've seen the wizardry of the science of mrna uh, and helping us fight infectious diseases yeah 
we uh, we got a Nobel Prize for that too. From I would say that's the least of the rewards and also one of the pinnacle of the rewards. Definitely. And just looking back on your long, illustrious career, what were aspects of doing these procedures or complex components to these procedures that you found the most difficult or challenging? Uh, if you could just recount some instances that, that were the most challenging, uh, either mentally or emotionally for you. One of the things that we all have to face when we go into medicine is that we're used to being right because we passed all the tests to get into the good spot of being the learner and the, ultimately the physician and the skilled clinicians. But two, that it's, it is uh, a battlefield in some ways when you take care of diseases and you're taking care of people because the variables keep changing. So one of the hardest things is to realize that Sometimes you'll do everything right, as will the patient and the science, and it won't turn out exactly the way you want. So you'll face emotional roller coasters in the journey with the patient that have to do with things turning out the way um, you didn't want to because of the way the disease ran or even some other problem. But those hopefully will um, be less common. There will be some uh, challenges in terms of feeling like you want to do something and you're not 100% sure that you have everything you need to get it done for that person. And what I have gotten to experience in that in, think, in journeys such as this is that there's partners around and that medicine is actually truly about building your village and your team. The patient and their family need that, but we also need that as clinicians. So I've gotten to work with great clinicians um, and also scientists on the science side, but the great clinicians, so that if we're doing a tricky operation to take a tumor off of the carotid artery, we can work with the vascular surgeons. Or if we're diving into the chest to take out a, a tumor or a mass, we can work with the chest surgeons. And frequently, they'll call me because they know that I like working on the recurrent nerve as it's going through the chest and coming into the neck to head to the voice box. So building that team is really great. And then also realizing when the team isn't totally clear to you, but you're having an emergency and you want support to take better care of the person uh, who you're taking care of, that your colleagues are ready to jump in. And that's really hard to call for help when you're uh, doing something and realize that there may be a colleague who can pitch in and team up with you. Um, we're not always trained that it's okay to reach out, but I think one of the key things that I've appreciated is how much help you can get, how uh, reassuring it is to everybody to have the whole team together, including the patient, and that it also builds deeper relationships and it makes your healthcare uh, working environment way more um, healthy for you and allows you to build some resilience, which is something we talk about a lot. Like as the students, you. A couple of years before you, they your class your class started slightly into the end of the pandemic, but there was a class that started in the middle of the pandemic and were kind of deprived of the social and educational opportunity to be together. And we see the real value of that. That was a long answer for a great question. <laughs> oh no, that was a great answer. Um, and and I think you draw upon something very uh, very important that um, we don't really get taught 
how to build relationships or develop those people skills. It's just something, it's like a soft skill that it's expected that everyone should have. And these exams that we take are to test our medical knowledge about things, but it's, we, we're never taught how to, you know, uh, navigate the political situation within hospitals or departments or how to balance your expectations from different relationships you have, or even cultivating new relationships. And, um, it's interesting that like, it's so deeply ingrained in how the profession works and business people like always talk about networking, networking. And they networking. do, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's almost like we don't really talk about it in medicine that much. And I feel like we should. I, I, I definitely agree with you, Sai. The, the networking part of, I think, business education may have existed a long time ago, but I'm way more aware of it since I came to Penn and saw how Wharton educated its uh, MBA students. And in particular, they looked for people to have already gone to the work environment and come back. And I'm wondering if that was for the persons to or those students to have gained an experience of working in complex organisms, so to speak, organizationally, and to help them have some examples or exemplars of good communication, good teams, not so ideal teams, and then help them build skills. I think I'm on a lifelong journey on learning how to communicate, share, listen. I've appreciated that I spend more time in this building at the hospital than I do anywhere else. So I strike up conversations with everybody. I learn about football. I learn about the organization and we develop kind of friendships and it, I think we all develop a sense of belonging. So the, the social skills that you're alluding to, I think they're going to be some of the skills and behaviors that help you enjoy work and the workplace more. And they'll help you um, develop some skills, techniques, experiences that I think make us better listeners and better um, able to understand each other's different viewpoints. And, and for the person coming to see us, they're usually a little nervous, if not scared of the disease. They're probably, to be honest, a little nervous or scared about who they're going to walk in and meet. Um, and what they're going to be like, because no matter what you can read about us online, you never know till you know. So that first couple of minutes of breaking down the ice, creating a warm environment, getting to know each other, I think helps everybody. We talk about it on our team here in the office uh, about like Juby, who's, who's our administrative leader. She's the first person who answers the phone, and talks to most patients. To be honest, almost every patient I see as their first visit brings that up, and they know that that was that was kind of what of the one of the things they enjoyed. They had a good experience. So, the social skills, the communication skills, are really critical to our work. And it's surprising because it's twenty first century. We all have short attention spans. We scroll, we click, we swipe, but then it's nice to talk, and talking is what we rely on when it comes to building trust. I think. Yeah, and it's also I feel like very fulfilling and just it gives it, it if you have good positive interactions, it makes your day better. You have this extra boost of energy or motivation just from inspiring conversations. And COVID definitely like it set a break on people doing that real time in person and the effects kind of carried over after too with just 
most meetings going virtually and it's convenient. I feel you can do more in terms of product, quote unquote, productivity, getting into more meetings, but having that human component, I feel like in medicine is especially important because it's not just about productivity, right? It's about making that connection with someone, making sure that they trust you and making sure that they're comfortable and in a good environment to be treated, right? It is. It, um, you know, the, uh, <laughs> COVID took away a lot of things and took away way more life and function amongst people that we could ever imagine. And I'm not sure we fully learned all we can about that, but I can tell you, like you said, when you lose the chance to be with each other, you lose the chance to build these connections that maybe everybody calls them soft connections, but they really are the fabric that makes things really come together. And they're the relationships that I think help gel people who are similar minded. Like you can sit in the same meeting. I can tell from your body language or your head tilt that, ah, you know, size interested. Or I can tell, oh, maybe I'm going off on the wrong path. But it's hard to tell that on the video meeting. But boy, talking, getting to know each other and using that as the foundation for the team, I think are never going to go away. Yeah, definitely. They're very fulfilling. Yeah. Like you said. Within facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, you know, you've been in the field for the past 30 years. You've interacted with so many people in the field, seen them come and go, I'm sure, and um, have this wealth of experience from your time within it. How have you seen the field develop for the past 30 years? Facial plastics uh, surgery has really developed in kind of two or three major areas. One is restoration of facial function in terms of nerve grafting and ways to repair facial paralysis has really come a long way and has become a skill that more and more surgeons have, especially super specialized surgeons, everything from nerve grafting to transferring muscles to help re rehabilitate portions of the face that can't move so that people can regain a smile or different techniques to help people close their eyelids or have their eyebrows and faces be in a similar position. For anything from a cancer to a viral thing that would give you a facial paralysis or what oftentimes is called Bell's palsy. So that's really come a long way. The caveat though is it's not quite as as natural or even looking as what you had before. So do you still stand out a little bit and is it still um, functionally maybe not as normal as you want it to be in terms of even maybe controlling your coffee or your um, your smile. And for that reason, I consider facial paralysis still a frontier zone in terms of getting to the optimal forms of re restoration of form and function. And one that's highly important because so much of our first impression is looking at people's eyes and as much as we focus on noses and want to change the shape of them or not, it's really the eyes and the smile that draws us into people and helps us know whether they're happy, healthy, engaged, unengaged, find us interesting, not interesting, all sorts of important things. So I think that's a frontier still, even though it's come a long way. The flip side of that is from staying youthful, healthy, wellness, things like Botox and fillers and minimally invasive ways to maintain youthfulness and youthful appearance 
that captures our epitome of our energy and our health maintenance with working out and our liking to work and being in the work environment for a longer part of our career, those things have those things have changed night and day since the 70s and 80s to now 2023 to um, people having noticeable work versus people not even, you can't even tell what people have had, but you know they look great. And so that's come a long way. Uh, from the cancer aesthetics and reconstruction, we've come a long way, but probably we're still on the frontier side of it where there's still opportunity in terms of some of the um, functions that we want to recreate and the volumes that we want to restore. But we've, we've come a long way in that. So I think in terms of why I went into ENT or head and neck surgery or otolaryngology, the, the things that I was interested in have changed a lot. Um, have they really hit their peak? Probably the peak is still coming. And we kind of talked about this before with the grafts and tissue transfers and stuff. But again, I just find it very interesting of how you can transfer tissue from one area to another. And this, this term is called, or this technique is called microvascular free tissue transfer. Can you just describe like what that technique entails? And you know, like we in medical school, we, we learn about like graft versus host disease, where if you put something foreign into like the body, like the body wants to reject it. But if you use your own tissue, the body knows exactly what it is. It's from your own body. You're just putting it in a different location. And so the fact that the body's smart enough to differentiate what is self versus non-self is so interesting to me. But how did this advancement specifically come about? And like, What's the actual technique or process involved with doing this? So the actual technique is, I'll start with that and then we'll go back to how it came about and why it came about. The actual technique, for example, let's say we needed bone for a part of your body. In particular, let's say it was your jaw or maybe even your spine or your femur. There's bones in the body that have an ar a named artery and a vein that flow to them. In particular, the fibula in your lower leg is that little bone next to your tibia. It's kind of a spare part. You know, as long as the upper part and the lower part are there to stabilize your knee and ankle, you can take the middle part with the peroneal artery and that'll transfer up to anywhere you want it to. You can hook it up to an artery and a vein and it'll flow. It'll be living bone right away. Totally compatible with your body's immune system and likely to heal bone to bone with the rigid osteosynthesis. In other words, the bone will fuse just like a broken bone would. And we can stabilize it with titanium plates, um, which the body also tolerates well. So that was described as a procedure in the late 70s in the lab developed by um, plastic and reconstructive surgeons. And similar transplants of things like the small intestine had been done in the even in the late 50s. The thing that really held this tech, the technique back was anesthesia was dangerous in the 70s and 80s and suddenly became safer in the 80s and 90s. And um, ICUs and perioperative monitoring really jumped forward. And so in, in the late to mid 80s, this started to take off. But there were very few surgeons who could do it technically, very few hospitals that had all the setup to do it. So when I heard about the people who were doing it, and I was a resident, and Dr. Weisberger actually came to me and said, hey, what do you think? 
I, I knew that was the frontier that that was going to be key for head and neck. And I wasn't the first person who knew that. I just wanted to be in on it. Um, so that's where I knew I wanted to do my training. So I was fortunate enough to get trained uh, by Dr. Hayden uh, here at Penn. And he uh, was a great role model and a meticulous surgeon. And he was one of the pioneers of that in our field. So we started, I was like in this early generation of people who did this type of surgery. And we were rebuilding the jaw because there was no good way to put living bone to recreate half a jaw. So people would be missing half a jaw. Their jaw would just shift over. Their cheek would cave in. So we gave them form and function by doing this. And the graph gave them form and function. People that had lost a half of their tongue, there was no great solution. The other solutions that were also created by creative people involved transferring muscle from the chest, but it was still attached below the collarbone up into their head and neck. And I'm moving my hands around, which you can't see on a, a non-video cast. But can you imagine having a piece of your chest stuck up inside your cheek and that little tunnel of tissue underneath there? And it so your neck looked abnormal, but your tongue and your cheek might have worked inside. So, so for the tongue and the jaw, and then later the throat tissues, all of these new microvascular flaps allowed us to have oh, the right type of tissue that we could move into the right place. And people actually could, even though it was technically more demanding, people could get out of the hospital faster and they could regain swallowing and other functions more quickly. And aesthetically, they looked more like themselves. So these were the frontiers. The flip side is these would take 18 hours or 20 hours when we first started. And so one of the key things a, a lot of us worked on was making it efficient and high reliability. So the success rates were in the high 90s instead of the 50-50 or 80-20 or 70-30. And once you take something from borderline success to high fidelity, high reliability, like high reliability organizations, then people want to, then people start to trust it and it becomes the mainstream. So when I started in this program, I ended up being the sole faculty here after my mentor um, took a, a different leadership role. The one thing that was lonely was not having a mentor and a partner. But the thing that was exciting is being the person who helped kind of keep developing it and to help build the uh, future of the field. So now I have a, there's probably five of us now who do this kind of work and, uh, and we do several hundred of these uh, a year, like three, 300 or so. And so we're one of the busier programs. And um, so our whole team kind of revolves around the fact that if we can remove a tumor, we can usually reconstruct the person's uh, resection site in a way that'll work for them functionally. So you're an early adopter of this. Uh, I was definitely an early adopter. And what the people around at the time told me is, you know, the early adopters burn out fast. So you have to watch out for that and pick your uh, trajectory if you'd like so that you can stay in it for the long haul, which I did and I like it. And I, st I still do these operations. I did one yesterday, actually, yeah. So we reconstructed a jaw with bone from the shoulder blade. Hmm. And what do you think is the next big thing, just like free tissue transfer uh, that's coming into ENT or develop, being developed in ENT right now? 
I think there's definitely two frontiers and perhaps three. Uh, frontier number one is once we rebuild the jaw to make it more straightforward to have dental restoration and rehabilitation, even if there's radiation to the tissue, which is kind of a long story, but radiation damages the ability to put in dental implants and retain them. It hurts the tissue in that way, even though it helps fight the cancer. So I think that's still a frontier. I think the other opportunity that I see as a frontier is when we do our reconstructions, even though we're using the most likely tissue to mimic the tissue that has been removed or re that needs to be replaced, it's still sometimes a compromise. So 3D scaffolding and engineering and also stem cells so that the tissue that we transfer could potentially become more like a tongue, maybe grow the muscles instead of and nerves so those kind of things can happen so the tissue could potentially be a carrier of stem cells or progenitor cells or even genes that allow us to give the next tier of reconstructive specificity along those lines really the extent of surgery right now is still defined by scans cat scans and mris which have come a long way but really image-guided surgery, such as knowing where the bone is and where the structures are, has started to come into play. But image-guided surgery for soft tissue, knowing where the tumor is versus not, and helping us define the extent of surgery for a good margin. I imagine a future where those um, imaging techniques or molecular techniques will help us cut and remove more precisely to either minimize more or maximize oncologic success. And another advancement or current development in the ENT I saw that I found intriguing was the transoral robotic surgery. How do you guys use uh, ro robots in ENT and like how did it start and how, did, how does it help the surgeries for patients? Transoral robotic surgery has been one of the greatest additions to the surgical armamentarium for the patient, the disease, and for the otolaryngologist. The, um, the robot was really not designed necessarily for us to use in the mouth, but we saw other fields using it, and uh, a curious resident and several of our curious faculty uh, did some brainstorming, actually. I remember the resident walked into my office and said, what do you think about the robot? And I go, I think it should be something we explore. Uh, and then my partners uh, worked with Neil Hochstein, who was the resident, and uh, and Dr. Weinstein and Dr. O'Malley, and, and all of us in our own little way pitched in on this to learn how to use the robot inside the mouth and to operate. And the robot isn't like R2-D2 where it's rolling around and talking on its own, and I probably shouldn't have referenced something that's probably trademarked, but anyway, I did. <laughs> uh, the robot has arms that you and I can control with the micro manipulators, and it has a uh, long fiber optic uh, uh, telescope that's flexible. And these arms and the flexibility of the scope allow us to see places that we couldn't easily see or reach with our hands or our standard instruments. So, Sai, if you can imagine that your hands are much longer and the tip of your finger has all of the manipulation skills of your five digits and can wiggle around and do things 
So suddenly it's not, it's no longer you're operating where you think you are, you're operating way beyond where you are, but with the same skill you would have had with your fingers if you're a musician or a surgeon or a, an artist, that's what the robot has provided for us. So it's allowed us to tackle surgeries without incisions that were so extensive. We used to frequently divide the mandible, divide it and swing it out of the way and then have to reconstruct the mandible to remove tumors in certain parts of the head and neck. We don't do that anymore. And um, it's allowed us to potentially preserve normal tissue without subjecting it to the incisions that were required to get to that hard to reach spot. So it's really revolutionized uh, the care of certain cancers that are past the oral part of the tongue, the area of the tonsil, the back of the tongue, the bottom of the throat, the high skull base. So I see more of a future with that than we can already imagine. But it's really over the last 15 years, it's probably been more now, almost 20 years really changed um, some of the care paradigms, really innovated here at Penn. Uh -huh. And it's, it's interesting because you almost get an extra layer of uh, manipulations with your, you know, 10 limbs. And uh, on top of that, you're making it less invasive for the patient, probably safer. And, it you is. know, you improve uh, resection of like the cancer in harder to reach areas because you have that extra layer of manipulation. You do. And you see so differently. And I think the next, I'm imagining the next frontier on this is going to be where the the domain where the robotic techniques and technologies along with imaging and some of the other tools we have will help us define margins better. Interesting though, it still requires a lot of finesse and skill. Um, so some people feel that the, the skills of gaming and micro manipulation are very helpful in, in, in becoming comfortable with jockeying the robot. <laughs> Well, I know my Call of Duty uh, skills can definitely translate into the operating room. I'm, I'm pretty sure they will. You know, the interesting thing is, is where does uh, simulation and other kind of surrogates for uh, thinking ahead and developing strategies come into play is probably one of the other frontiers. Uh, I imagine as we get more used to virtual reality tools and also uh, everybody is very comfortable with the concept of practice and sports and simulation in certain situations. But I, I imagine as people look back on where we are now that they will uh, probably get a little chuckle at what we thought was high tech cutting edge simulation and really have way more high fidelity tools for us to learn from and to even analyze what we did. One of the key opportunities in medicine that we don't get to do very much is kind of that post-game analysis. I haven't been uh, uh, the kind of person who could sit and watch a whole football game or baseball game, but that post-game analysis, that's money. Short blips on the plays, the analyses, who did what, and the uh, perspectives are really interesting. So I think the other thing that, um, some of the opportunities are recording, edit, you know, watching, reanalyzing, even time and motion tools to track what our hands and our um, instruments are doing is really a great learning opportunity and maybe as a technologic frontier for teaching. And we talked about 
a lot of cool technology, a lot of cool developments in ENT. Um, just to conclude the episode, what excites you most about the future? Uh, you probably nailed it in the question. I think the future is exciting, and that's partly my mindset, which is I I like what I do, and I've I've found um, parts of it that keep me curious, which I think is a probably a lesson I learned from somebody um, during my training. But I I see it a lot in around me. It's the students who seem to be getting the most out of the rotations are the ones that are curious and excited. So maybe I learned from you all about staying in the game, so to speak. For ENT and our field of reconstructive and plastic surgery and head and neck oncology, I think the exciting tools are some of the diagnostics. We're, we're trying to learn whether viral DNA levels are a helpful tool in understanding if your cancer is gone or if it's coming back. We're looking at thyroid and thyroglobulin levels and to track people that have thyroid cancer. But what's next? You know, how do we know that yours has been treated enough and we don't really need to keep testing you or keep pursuing things? And that kind of applies to all of our cancers. For the skin, which so many of us have sun-damaged skin because this is such a great place to get a lot of sun, <laughs> how do you really know which part of your skin is damaged enough to treat before it becomes a skin cancer and what's that treatment it's not totally ent but the majority of the skin cancers are up here in the head and neck and the face area where they cause a lot of side effects so i think that's an interesting frontier probably the most exciting one is going to be the time where we can start to reconstruct nerve function that drives muscles to create smile tongue motion for speech and swallowing, restoration of swallowing function and muscles that were damaged by stroke or surgery or radiation, and then even salivary function, which is damaged by radiation or surgery or other autoimmune conditions, which damages quality of life, sense of taste, dental health. So we have plenty of exciting frontiers. I'm sure there will be many more interesting iterations of surgeries based on those unresolved uh, uh, kind of frontier issues. But I don't know which one's going to be the most exciting. There's going to be a lot of exciting developments coming, I see, down the future. Dr. Chalian, thank you so much for coming on the Strive podcast. Sai, thank you. Keep up the good work. I look forward to hearing more Strive podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.